The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles back to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans, the fifth chapter, we pick up in the middle of a a section where Paul is doing some of his deepest thinking, his most articulate arguing, his, his lawyer mind comes out in this section more than any place else. And this is a section of scripture that has caused some theologians no small heartburn. But I think if we'll just take the passage as it reads naturally, it will make a whole lot more sense than trying to make more of it than the words simply say. Romans chapter 5 we're going to be looking today at verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. This last week, my good friend Johnny Grote alerted me to an editorial in the Kansas City Star. The timing of this editorial was incredible with reference to what we're studying in Romans chapter 5. Let me read to you from the editorial section by a gentleman named the Reverend, already bothers me, the Reverend Duke Tufty of the Unity Temple on the Plaza. Kansas City, Missouri, and he wrote this. And I'm typically not one to pick on someone, but if you put this in the Kansas City Star for all to see as something you believe, it's open game. The question is, what do you think about original sin? This is his answer. Quote, I've never been able to understand the concept of original sin. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Supposedly, some 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve were living in a paradisical life in the Garden of Eden. Every need was filled. Every desire was granted. Then one day, the two ate from the tree of forbidden fruit, and all hell breaks loose. A dark and murky shadow of guilt, shame, and fear were cast, was cast over Adam and Eve like a wet blanket on a cold winter day, and they were condemned to suffer. I'm okay so far. Adam has to do hard labor, and in a different sense, Eve has to do so as well. Their misstep was labeled original sin, and like some, of, uh, some kind of all-encompassing genetic disposition, every single person born after them was deemed sinful by nature and unworthy in the eyes of God, all because they took a bite out of a piece of fruit. And then he says this, no human being should have his or herself, soul, or personhood inflicted with such a sick, insidious notion. And the pompous preachers who proliferate such propaganda should be ashamed for defaming God's great work. The next time you have a chance, take a small baby in your arms. I can just hear the violin starting. Take a small baby in your arms and hold it close and look into its, in her, his or her eyes. You will see an original blessing very much the same as yourself. End quote. Now, I am tempted to do an exposition of his editorial, but I won't do that. But when he says, quote, no human being or uh, should have his or herself 
or soul or personhood inflicted with such a sick and insidious notion, that of being sinful, that's the sick and insidious notion. He's attacking the message of the Old Testament, the account of the New Testament, the very words of God and the character and integrity and credibility of Jesus Christ. All which affirm we are sinners by nature. And though Mr. Tufty has told Kansas City that your pastor today should be, quote, ashamed of defaming God's great work, end quote, by telling you that you and I are born in a sinful state and with sinful natures, I think you would join me in rejecting this heretical teaching and saying with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God because it's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. This so-called reverend has unwittingly raised the right question. Are people really naturally bad? You know, it's really sweet to hold that newborn and say people are, are innocent and perfect. My, my question is, what does he do when he holds the two-year-old? I mean, that theology evaporates very quickly. What is the standard for assessing the true nature of man? I mean, can we be honest? Is the standard for addressing the true nature of man a visual encounter with a newborn baby? Is that where you're going to stake your eternity on? Awfully thin ice. That is the question that is raised here in our passage. What are people really like? Are people really sinful? Are they born in trouble with God? Is everyone bent and inclined and has a proclivity towards sinfulness from birth, or do they learn it? Coupled with that is the question, which is also the answer, why does everyone die? And Paul says that the answer to the question why everyone dies is the answer to the question, is everyone sinful? The universal nature of everyone dying proves that someone somehow infected our human race with a genetic disposition and a spiritual disposition, physically and spiritually, to die. Why do people die? Paul's answer is that death is the result of sin, original sin, and every man Going back to our first parents, Adam and Eve has committed sin, not that made them sinners, but committed sin because they were sinners. You and I understand that death is on our heels from our very first breath. It threatens us at every moment. It threatens us all the time. I mean, we could just have a a group sharing session and talk about how many ways and places where you and I put in a position this morning, just in the few hours we've been awake, that made us vulnerable to death. You may say, well, I'm an excellent driver, but you can't control the guy who may come across the median and hit you head on. You may say, I have good balance, but that doesn't doesn't account for the fact that you may have a stair that's loose and you could fall and break your back or neck. You may say whatever. Jonathan Edwards' great sermon in Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God says, we have no idea how many incalculable ways God has of taking us out of this world. We are walking across life on a rotten bridge. Every next step could be one that falls through because death is so prevalent. Life is so fragile. Not only is death ever on our heels as a reminder, but sin is the ever-present hindrance to what our soul really wants, which is God. It stands between us and God. It traps us. It enslaves us. It woos us. It lies to us. It satisfies us with salt water that only makes us want more. We come to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. That comes after the first 11 verses, which have told us what's so great about the gospel. 
It helps us in every trial. It gives us the reflection on the love of God, which gives us this unbelievable information, this, this, this wonderful insight, this divine revelation that God chose us when we were helpless and weak and sinful and enemies of God, and yet he reached down in condescending love and died for us on the cross to offer salvation. But before he leaves that subject and before he gets into uh, the next section in Romans 6 and 7, he dives into some pretty serious theological and philosophical problems. He does what three-year-olds dare to do. And he says, why? Why? Why do people sin? Why are they sinners? Why does everyone die? And these theological answers are are building blocks not just for our theology, they're building blocks for life. If we get this passage right, we understand ourselves. We understand the gospel. And we certainly understand our mission to the world. We understand evangelism, why it's necessary. I mean, some of you can, let me just shoot straight. Some of you should look at this passage that we're going to be studying in the next few weeks and say, that is so important. I want to go and tell people who've never heard that before about that. Neighborhood, work, overseas, in missions. I pray that parents would look at this amazing answer to death and sin, that's the gospel, and would begin praying that we would have a loose grip on our children to send them to a world that doesn't know it. I mean, this is important stuff. Let's dial in on verses 12 to 14. We looked at verse 12 in isolation last week, but now we're going to look at it in the context of the section there with those three verses. And as we do so, I want us to look together at two critical insights for understanding death's long reign. That's what Paul is raising here. Death reigns, he says. That reign is, it's like a monarch. It's like a king. It reigns over every man. Why does death rule the earth? Why is it a monarch? You say, well, I thought God ruled the earth. Well, he also has the prince of the power of the air who has power over this earth. He's given death a reign on this earth, but even in him giving death a reign, that's still God ruling and reigning over the earth because it's the due and just penalty of God for sin. So to say death reigns is just shorthand for saying God reigns in judgment. The first insight that we have to consider is the common source of death. Now, we did this last week, so we won't spend a lot of time here. But look back at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. He goes back to the Adam and Eve narrative. He goes back to Genesis 3. They, they, they show up in this garden. They have wonderfully been, been delivered from, from uh, not delivered from, been afforded the opportunity to have nothing that's a problem. They didn't even have to work for food. Let's just go pick some fruit. In that context, God said, look at everything I've given you. You can have everything except that thing. And instead of seeing everything as what they used to enjoy, we find them in Genesis 3 right here at this thing, right? Talking to a serpent, which, by the way, I take as absolutely 100% non-mythical and historically accurate. So did Paul. He says uh, at least three different times in the New Testament, Eve was deceived by Satan. Satan was a serpent. He took it that Eve was talking to a snake. It's not fantastical. This is not myth. This is not science fiction. Well, you know exactly what happened. Eve took she gave to her husband, Adam, with her. He was there the whole time watching this interaction, hearing this interaction, and he fell to, which puts the, the full culpability on Adam even more than Eve. He failed in his leadership. He failed in his marriage. He failed in his love for his wife. And in the end, after Eve chose to eat the fruit, he chose Eve over God. And through that one act and through that one man, it's an interesting phrase, sin entered into the world. It's an interesting word there, entered. It came into existence. It came up the on-ramp, and now it's on this freeway, and there are no exits. Sin entered into the world. And then the next phrase, and death through sin, has to be supplied with that little verb also, and death entered into the world. 
I hope you understand that God's original blueprint was for man not to die. In the end, there will be a tree that we'll all eat of, the, the tree of life. And after that, we will never die. Death is a consequence. Death is a curse. Death is a, is a penalty for sin. Now, if we go back and we really dissect uh, that passage, some theologians have said, see, it can't be taken as, as uh, having any credibility. It can't be taken as having any uh, veracity or truthfulness. Because if you do that, if you take Genesis as history and God at his word, God is a liar. That's what liberals would tell us. You say, why? Because God said, the day you eat, you will die. They ate, and they didn't die for a long time, hundreds of years. And some people say, oh, no, God was, God was gracious, and he was. But what you find is they did not die that day. They tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, which would have been an appropriate covering. Most of us were in cotton today. There's nothing wrong with covering yourself with plants. But it wasn't effective to cover their sin, so God then covered them with skin, leather. That leather came from the death of an animal. So God did keep his word. <laughs> the substitutionary atonement, the day you sin, you die, but I will let something take your death instead. That became a picture, the proto-evangelium, the, the foreshadowing of what would happen on the cross, as in the foreshadowing of every sacrifice that would foreshadow the, uh, the, the death of Christ. But death did enter the world. Adam and Eve died. And every person on the planet, except for two, have died as well. Enoch and Elijah. And those are special cases for another sermon. The wages of sin is death. The universal effect of Adam's sin is that all die. Look at what happened. And so death spread to all men. Very important word, spread. Through Adam's sin, death and sin now spread to us. How does that happen? We looked at this in great detail last week. We looked at seminalism and federalism. Does it happen just representatively? Does it happen through Adam's seed genetically? And we said, yes, letter C, all the above. We're infected with sin because Adam sinned. How does that all work out? We don't know. There's some kind of mysterious solidarity, this symbolic and genetic solidarity that we cannot trace down exactly. The gene pool is broken. We understand that. But even worse than that, our souls are broken and from birth bent with sinfulness and a sin nature. That's why I go back to the illustration at the beginning. Uh, looking at a newborn who's sleeping has no spiritual, apologetical credibility and verifiable authority in anybody's life. I can say the same thing about a puppy. Adam's sin had universal effect. And the universal consequence of Adam's sin was that death spread to all men. Sin spread, death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Simply, death is the consequence of sin. And sin and death entered the world through Adam, and we have been dealing with that since our first parents. Here's a question in light of the editorial that was posed. You know, I, we, we can pick on this, 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 this supposed reverend. That's very common thinking. Why do you sin? Why do people do bad things? Why does anyone sin? And the answer that you give to that determines whether the heart that you're talking to or your own understanding has an accurate view of total depravity. Can I say it again? If sin is not the problem, the gospel cannot be the solution. You say, well, what if we raise our kids to understand that? Won't that hamper their self-esteem? <laughs> no. No person who's ever been alive has suffered from self-esteem. You say, wait a minute. How do you... Ephesians says no person ever hated their life. They love it. And when someone says, oh, I feel sorry for myself, I have low self-esteem, they don't have low self-esteem. Their problem is you don't esteem them as much as they esteem themselves. That's low self-esteem. 
Since you don't love them as much as they love themselves, that's a problem. That's what's loose. That is what low self-esteem is. You can't, you can't make it bad enough, folks. You, the news is worse than we think. But let me, let me beg the point that Paul's making here. If we don't really understand how bad the problem is, if we don't see the infection in our heart, the contamination, the pollution of sinfulness in our heart, we will never reach out for the gospel. You know why this... Church building today is not flooded and crushing people outside, hanging out of the windows, standing in line trying to get in here today because they don't think they need what we have. Well, that's a review of last week. Now we get into the specific argument that Paul's going to begin. The second critical insight for understanding death's long reign. Number two, the comprehensive reach of death. Now, this gets very interesting. This is some theology that's, that, that's a lot of fun to track through because Paul exposes questions that we should be asking even though we're not always asking and gives us the answer. And he basically, he, he fills in the gaps of theological understanding that are very, very interesting. Verses 13 and 14 simply make the point that because death reigned, now watch this, from Adam until Moses. Now, you have to give a timeline in, in your mind. Moses is a key point in the history of the world, in the history of of Israel, in the history of Christianity. Moses was the law giver. God gave the law to Moses. What did the law do? The law told us what God is like, told us what God expects, and told us when we violate God's standards. It's it's the rules. It's the the accounting measure. It's the measurement. It's the metrics for for human behavior and, and the human soul. So once Moses spoke, from God and said, this is who God is. This is what God expects. This is the law. Everyone was accountable to the law. If you're smart, and I know you are, you would say, but what about Cain and Abel and everybody and Noah and everybody who lived before Moses? What about Joseph and Reuben and all of his brothers? What about them? Paul raises that question and wants us to think about that question because of an interesting implication in a moment. These two verses function as an aside, really, as in a footnote. He's talked about the, the first Adam, and he's going to come back in a minute and talk about the second Adam. But this is a footnote to tell us uh, about the sinfulness that we all have and some questions that might intrigue you. First of all, he shows us that morality reigns regardless of understanding. This will help your your theology and your apologetics. Mortality, death, reigns regardless of whether you understand why or not. Look, children die. They don't understand the workings of why they've died. Verse 13, for until the law, before Moses, sin was in the world. Now, that's important because the Jewish teaching at the time was that no one could really know what was right and wrong until the law. And so they just kind of gave an excuse and a pass to everyone before, before um, Moses, which really begs the question of the flood, but that's another time. But sin is not literally counted or, or reckoned for. It's accounted for when there is no law. This is theological history. Moses gave the law, and the Mosaic law defined, but it did not cause sin. Now think about this. It defined sin, but it didn't cause sin. Saying that means that there was sin before Moses. Do you believe that? Have you read Genesis? The apostle now argues the obvious logic that death's reign proves that sin was present in everyone. How do you know everyone was was sinful before uh, Moses and after Adam? Because they all died. It's Paul's answer. Death is the consequence of sin. They all died, syllogism, therefore they were sinful, right? Even though the law hadn't been given, even though they didn't know, they didn't have a Bible, they didn't know exactly what God expected, Romans 2 tells us, though, they should have known from what? Their conscience. Their conscience bore witness. Every unbeliever's conscience still bears witness to right and wrong and to the law. There are no excuses. The issue he's considering is the fact that sin could not be tracked. 
It couldn't be counted. It couldn't be isolated and identified as such because there was no accounting system. There was no law. That's what the law does. That's the only thing he's really saying in verse 13. Like, well, well, you couldn't account for sin, but the fact that people died meant they were still sinning. God's holiness was still there. He was still offended. He gave no one a hallway pass before Moses. But now we get into the heart of his argument, which is verse 14. And that is mortality reigns because of depravity. This is the crown theological jewel in this passage. Mortality, death, reigns, rules, because of sinfulness, because of depravity. He said it multiple ways. Now he's absolutely clear. Nevertheless, that nevertheless means even though people sinned and died in between Adam and Moses, nevertheless, death did reign. Even though there was no law, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Then he announces our logic. Even though those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of Christ, type of him, that is Christ, who is to come. Let's unpack that. It seems like a kind of an awkward, difficult passage. It's simpler than you think. He uses the metaphor of a ruling monarch, a king. Kings reign. Death here is said to reign. It's to be the ruler, the authority, the captain. We understand how it reigns. It reigns because everyone dies. And it reigns because everyone's afraid of it. Now, there are three kinds of death that you, you need to look at in the Scripture. There is, there is uh, physical death, and I think that's in play here. There's also spiritual death, which means those who, go, uh, who are condemned by God. And then there's what's called the second death, which is that spiritual death more, more uh, exemplified or explained in Revelation, which is the final eternal judgment after the judgment of Christ in the great white throne. Death reigns. Death is real. Death is a controlling feature in our lives from the time we first know about it. I told you last week, my first memory of really the power and impact of death was my grandfather dying. I remember asking as a first grader some some awfully hard questions where did he go? What's happening? Where is he now? Why does he die? What's his, what happened to his body? What if his body uh, decays? What, if it, what happened to the people a thousand years ago who are dead? And they just flooded with those, those, those questions. And those questions have dogged me ever since then. You know well the passage in Hebrews talking about why Christ became a man so he could die and he deals with his death as our threat. Since the children share in the flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. How in the world does the devil have the power of death? I thought you said that death was the minion of God. Well, Death is what God uses. Death is what God executes. But Satan uses that. He has it in his power. How? The next phrase tells us. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slaves, to slavery all their lives. We are all slaves of the fear of death. I was laughing about my, my physical a couple weeks ago. I have a believing doctor. Love him. Not the most encouraging guy sometimes. He says, look, you can do this. You can take fish oil and aspirin. It's all going to make you feel better. Lose weight, get in shape, all this stuff. He says, but you, you, you and I know that no matter what you do, God knows the exact day you're going to die. He's got a Burger King. I mean, what? <laughs> what? He's right. I'm all about being good stewards of our body. I, I, I'm... But the point is, if you back into that argument, he's got a great point. All our efforts will not postpone one instant or nanosecond the expiration date on our birth certificate that is held by God in heaven. Has God ever said, whoops? 
Has God ever said, uh-oh? Has God ever said, I didn't see that coming? And why do we die? Because of sin. Why are we subject to that fear? Because of the devil. How does he use that to his advantage? He makes us afraid of it by turning it into something other than what it is, at least for a believer. Now, for an unbeliever, it could be a lot of things. It could be the cessation of existence, right? Nihilism. You die and you just stop. Everything goes black, the lights are out, and you're done. Even that's a sad thing because you don't get to enjoy life anymore. For some people, though, that's the greatest escape. That's why we have suicides. For some, even unbelievers, death is the fear of judgment. Conscience is alive and well. Some people are afraid of that. What's really sad is when Christians bring our old unbelieving notion of the fear of death into our new life in Christ. Look, I'm there. I, I, I can be afraid just like anybody. I, was, uh, I don't like, I used to say I'm afraid of heights. I think I'm afraid of falling from heights. That's the better way to say it. Don't really want to die. I don't like walking next to um, sheer cliffs. They bother me. But when you break it down, it, I don't think I'm afraid of being dead. But I don't like the idea of getting dead. <laughs> but even having said that, like I have fears, questions, sometimes doubts. When you have fear of death, when you think, oh no, oh, I remember having a conversation with a, a sweet lady when I was in California who had just received the word that she had cancer and she said it was this is this is the place where the preacher becomes preached to she said i was driving home and i left the office in such a state of panic and arrived at my house in such a state of rejoicing because i realized that what satan was whispering in my ear was that this was bad and for a christian do you believe this? Death is not bad. Isn't that the foundation of our theology and our living? Christ has risen from the dead. We'll celebrate that next week. Christ has given us through faith the promise that we will rise with him after death. George Whitfield. Because I believe in the resurrection until God calls me home, I'm invincible. Don't you think most of our cowardice in evangelism, most of our cowardice in life, most of our cowardice in missions most, comes back to being afraid of death? Just having a wrong view of death? See, death reigns, but death isn't our enemy. Look at this phrase. This is interesting. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What in the world is that? It's not that hard. What does it mean that we're sinning in the likeness of Adam? Remember the point Paul's making. He's drawing it out. Let's go through some points. Death is universal as a consequence for sin. Got it? Death is a universal consequence for sin. The law identifies, reveals, gives an accounting system for the specific sins that we commit. Got that? But the fact that people died before Moses had given the law proves that sin is an inherited nature. You got that? Well, just as the law had specific prohibitions, specific admonitions, so did the offense of Adam. Adam. Eye contact, just like a little child. Give me some eye contact. Do not eat fruit from that tree, right there, that tree. Do you see this, Adam? Yes. Specific admonition, encouragement, instruction, nothing blurry, nothing but black and white in that. God told him what not to do. And he did it. 
Therefore, put all that together, this is the point Paul's making. Those who had sinned between Adam and Moses and those uh, uh, who sinned like those people, namely having no specific revelation, like Adam, the offense of Adam, specific revelation, the offenses after Moses and the law, specific revelation. Those who sin, here's the word, out of ignorance of God's law are still susceptible to death and judgment by God. That's an important point. You want to take away? Ignorance of what God has said is never an excuse for not knowing what God has said or coming under his judgment. All have sinned against God's holiness and died. Even the pagan in Africa who has never heard of God and his word still dies. Why? Because he is sinful. Ignorance gives you no hallway pass around death. Because you all sin, all of us sin. Now, as we've seen, sin was present before Moses. It's evidenced by the fact that death ruled, as Paul says, every man. In the end, death is the consequence for sin. Now we're back to, turn back over to Romans 1. Now now we understand Paul's thinking more fully explained when he says in verse 18, chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Ignorance of what God has said is no excuse. Your conscience is still alive, Romans 2.14. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood. What a powerful term. Through that which he has made. For though they knew God, did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became useless, futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And here's the the great culmination. They professed to be wise, but they were fools because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. Ignorance of God's word is not and has never been an adequate, acceptable excuse before God for sin and disobedience. You want proof? They die. Romans 3.23, how many have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? How many? All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, we'll get there in a few periods of time. The wages of sin is, do you understand that? The wages of sin is death. Paul's further explaining what he's talking about here in Romans 5. The fundamental issue he's dealing with is this question. What about the people who live before the law, which informs us what is right and wrong about, what about the people who've never heard God's word now? It's the same answer. We are all accountable to God Let me just beg you again. This passage has moved my heart so strongly again to think about missions. If this is true, if men and women are without excuse before God, because they don't, even though they don't know God's word and they don't know the gospel, shouldn't we be doing everything possible to send missionaries to people who can tell them that? There's only three options with missions. You give, you go, or you disobey. That's the only three. I'm just thinking about our trip in a couple weeks to Italy. We've been to Italy, I don't know how many times. It's just, it's just, just dark. People trapped in this cathartic Roman Catholic religion that they're just associated with by birth more than anything or ceremony, just lost. Or South Africa, driving through Soweto, the little townships, and see thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and little kids running around the street who will die and go to hell without Christ. How will they hear unless someone is sent? But it's easier to do thinking about that than to do thinking about that. you believe in hell? Do you? Do the people you know know that you believe in hell? 
I know that once there's Hebrews 9.27, there's, there's death and judgment, and that's it. And I don't know how much of the consciousness and memory of this earth the, the damned and the redeemed will have. But I shudder to think that one day someone will, not could, will stand in hell with the memory that they sat by that pastor on a plane. They lived next to that Christian. And we could have told them how not to be Death is the just and due penalty for sin. Where there's death, there's sin. No matter the time, no matter the geography. But there is good news. Later in this passage, Paul states the good news elsewhere. We'll study this, the passage in the second Adam soon. 1 Corinthians 15. You, you might just want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 especially in, in the context of the, the Resurrection Sunday season that we're in. First Corinthians, look at verses 15, excuse me, uh, verse 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That is the deepest spiritual deep breath and sigh you can make after looking at this passage in Romans 5. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will not die. They'll be made alive. Look down at verse 54. But when this perishable, the body that we're living in now, will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death swallowed up in victory. Then I love the fact that God mocks death. Where's your victory? Where's your sting now, death? That I've raised those who I've redeemed from the dead. Verse 56. Do you underline things in your Bible? Do, do you mark things? Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Now you understand why he says that? The sting of death is sin. The reason we die is we're sinners and we sin. And the power of sin is in the law for you and me. But <coughs> thanks be to God who gives us victory, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we know this stuff... If we know this theology, what's the practical application? Paul knew you would ask that. So, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In this context, the work of the Lord is evangelism. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You may witness to 10,000 people and not see a soul converted, but your, your toil is not in vain in heaven's mindset and from heaven's perspective. Back to Romans 5. This last phrase speaks of Jesus um, who is a type of him who is to come. Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Now, you read later in the passage, if we were taking it all in one section, you would clearly see Adam is a type of the second Adam who is Christ. The Greek word is tupas. It means a person or event serving as a prophetic symbol, a foreshadowing to prefigure a future person or a future event. That's how the word is used. Adam is a prefigure of Christ. Now, if you're smart, and you are, and you just read the previous verses, and you did, you would say, hang on, Adam sinned and he died. How is he a type of Christ? The key is in the rest of the chapter. He'll tell us, but let me give you a head start. The similarity is found in this fact. Their actions had massive consequences. Adam's sin made us all sinners. Christ's death 
gives those who believe the chance to become, opportunity to become righteous. The garden and the cross are pivotal points then in history. How their acts affected others. There will be a second Adam who we study, Jesus. This Adam will bring death instead of life. Excuse me, life instead of death. He'll bring hope instead of despair, joy instead of sorrow, heaven instead of hell. Back to where we began with the Reverend Tufty. And yes, I'm being sarcastic, for which I will have not an apology. No human being, he says, should ever have his or herself or soul or personhood inflicted with such a sick, insidious notion that you're sinful. And the pompous preachers who proliferate such propaganda should be ashamed for defaming the great work of God. He's got it all wrong. God's great work is the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus, on the cross for sinners. You erase our sinfulness, you erase Jesus. If sin is not the problem, the gospel is not the solution, holding and staring at a newborn won't change the reality of your nature. Declaring depravity as a sick, insidious notion won't change the reality of nature. Denying and decrying that man is sinful won't change anything, such as, and such denials are eternally misguided. Jesus and his death on the cross are the only hope when we understand that he is our only hope because we are sinners. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says. Now, I'm so excited to get to this chapter. Just a really quick preview. Not much, just a little. Romans 8, can you turn over there? Paul begins the crescendo in Romans 5, and it will build and build into this epic symbol crash here in Romans 5, 35. Life's hard. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Think about this if you're in a hard way right time. Will separation from Christ caused by, be caused by tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, not having enough money to eat even, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, in the Greek is a stack. We overwhelmingly, supernaturally, incredibly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced. Can you say with Paul, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Where do you get that? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I almost had Aaron close us with a song today, but the hour is late, so let me just ask you. Can you sing in your heart with affirmation and truth and tearful joy with Horatius Spafford. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. What thought? My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And listen to this, and I, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Does the resurrection hope give you confidence and security in the crushing fear of the devil with the threat of death? Father, give us 
Give us evaluation hearts that can look into our own state and know whether we have passed from death to life, if we've believed in the facts of the gospel, if we've embraced the theology of the good news, if we believe that you are Lord and that we bow the knee to you, oh Lord, today, grant those who need salvation, salvation. While your heads are still bowed, we're going to dismiss in a minute. Our prayer, our prayer is going to be open to the right. Schultes will be over there. We'd love to pray with you or talk with you. We'd love to bear burden with you, shepherd you in any way. What kind of fool would say no to hope in the face of an impending death? Jesus is not a life raft that God has thrown you. Jesus is the whole world that God will give you. Everything your heart desires for peace for soul, not in this world, but in the one to come by embracing Christ. If you don't, If you're not a Christian, please don't go home without talking to us. Please, please. Father, the thought that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and is born no more by us, but by Jesus, is the thought to end all despair. Anchor us in that truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.